0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
1: Today's show is sponsored by Audible, the home of over 150,000 audiobooks. To get a free, yes, free audiobook, go to audibletrial.com forward slash queens and go find yourself something awesome to listen to today. This week, I'm going to recommend something a little higher brow than last time, an audiobook from the Great Courses series, Medieval Heroines in History and Legend, narrated by Bonnie Wheeler. This is a series of lectures on four of the most famous women of the Middle Ages, Eloise d'Argentay, Joan of Arc, Hildegarde of Bingen, and, most importantly for our story, Eleanor of Aquitaine. And it's free when you sign up for a trial membership at audibletrial.com forward slash queens. And better yet, by doing so, you'll be showing your support for the Queens of England podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 8, Eleanor of Aquitaine, the Crusading Queen of the French. I'm going to imagine that most of you, my dear listeners, had not heard of any of the three Matildas and the one Adeliza that I've been talking to you about so far. These are women that are normally known only by the nerdiest of nerdy history people. And now you lot too. You're welcome. Chances are, though, that you will have heard of Eleanor, even if you don't know much about her. Eleanor of Aquitaine squeezed a lot into her 80 years in life. She was the queen of two kingdoms, mother of three kings of England, of two queens of other kingdoms, led revolts, spent more than a decade in prison, went on crusade, and... well, you'll soon find out. She the first of our queens to be famous enough to be in a number of films and TV shows, including most famously In the Line of Winter, played by Catherine Hepburn. If you want to get ahead, I'd really, really, super strongly recommend that you watch that film. It's superb. I mean, President Bartlett called it his favourite film, and if the endorsement of a fictional president isn't worth something, then I'm not sure what is. Now, her life is far too rich and interesting to be kept to just one episode, so currently I'm planning to split it into three. This episode will look at her early life, and go on as far as her return to France after the Second Crusade. The second episode will look at the early part of her reign as Queen of England, and the final part will cover her later reign as Queen, and also as Queen Mother to her sons Richard and John. It's a lot to cover, but trust me, Eleanor is worth it. So, let's get started. Eleanor was born in 1124 in the Duchy of Aquitaine in southwest France. Aquitaine was the largest of the constituent fiefdoms of France, and could trace its roots all the way back to the 7th century CE. It got its name from the Roman province of Gallia Aquitania, and so you can argue that its roots as a territory may go back to its consolidation by Julius Caesar during the Gallic Wars, and later by the Emperor Augustus in 27 BCE. The territory that it controlled varied greatly over its time, but it dominated southwestern France all the way from the classical period and the middle ages. If you want to know more, I've included some stuff in the show notes that you can find at the queens of england Eleanor's father was William X of Aquitaine, who in his life held the triple title of Duke of Aquitaine, Duke of Gascony, and Count of Poitiers. These three together meant that William controlled an area that stretched from the Pyrenees to the south, the Loire Valley to the north, and Toulouse and Limoges to the east. Its position on the Atlantic coast meant that its cities were rich trade hubs, and the territory included the manufacturing hub of Poitiers, which was known for making excellent battle helmets, the wine country around Bordeaux, and was also rich in salt. Her mother was Eleanor of Châteauroux, who died when Eleanor was six while on a hunting trip with her husband. She and William had only two children who survived into adulthood, Eleanor and her younger sister Petronilla. The lack of a male heir meant that Eleanor, as the eldest, would become the richest heiress in France, probably of all Europe on the death of her father. We know very little about her upbringing, but we do know a lot about the court in which she grew up her grandfather william the ninth of aquitaine was the first known troubadour poet and though her father was far more interested in feasting rather than poeting his influence lived on in the aquitanian court while the courts of the norman queens of england were rather sober pious and proper eleanor grew up in a place of song sex and literature kind of like glastonbury but with even worse toilets her grandfather's poetry describes the court rather well he was described by an anonymous chronicler as being, quote, One of the most courtly men in the world, and one of the greatest deceivers of women. He was a fine knight-at-arms, liberal in his womanising, and a fine composer and singer of songs. He travelled much through the world, seducing women. Poems are a little too long to be included in the show, but I've recorded a couple and included them in the show notes. Her father, William X, was far less flamboyant, except in the size of his belly. He allied with the Empress and Geoffrey of Anjou during the Anarchy in England, and also got himself into a number of religious conflicts, allying with the anti-Pope Anaclectus in the Schism of 1130, before switching sides to support Pope Innocent II. In 1137, just as Stephen and Matilda were starting their war in England, William died while on pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela. This left Eleanor of Aquitaine as the sole ruler of her father's territory, at the tender age of just 13. As I said earlier, Aquitaine was a major player in the region, and so Eleanor was suddenly, much like Matilda of Boulogne had been a decade ago, the MVP of the marriage market. A major difference, though, between Eleanor and Matilda was that Matilda's father had arranged her marriage before his death. This meant that the succession for Boulogne was settled before his death, with his son-in-law exercising rulership on behalf of his wife in Uriaxaurus. This was not the case for aquitaine as william x had died suddenly and so the french king smelling an opportunity immediately pounced aquitaine was a little like normandy in terms of relationship with the french king nominally it was an area that owed him fealty and he counted it as part of his realm but in reality it was independent of his direct control as I said before, England and France in this period were very different entities, the former being highly centralised and the latter being so federalized as to make the king in the centre very institutionally weak. The French king, Louis the Sixth was keen to centralise power in the French kingdom and saw immediately the opportunity that Eleanor's inheritance presented him. He was far too fat, sickly and already married to marry her himself, but his heir and co-king of the French, also named Louis, was not. The French king at this time crowned their heirs as junior kings while they were still alive, so as to ease the transition to power of their heirs, lessening the chance of civil war. Bringing Aquitaine into the personal lands of the French king would be a tremendous increase in his power, as he could personally muster far more troops and amass far more wealth this way, relying less on his nobles to supply these things for him. The younger Louis went off to Bordeaux at the head of a magnificent company of men, horses and gold. He was around the same age as Eleanor, which was a little unusual in the period. Louis was 17, and his bride was 13. Usually the husband would be at least 10 years older than his wife in noble marriages, which gave them a sort of natural patriarchal sense of hierarchy, with matches that were of two people of roughly equal age that gave greater possibility for a partnership to develop, or conflict, depending on how well they got on. Louis arrived in Bordeaux on the 11th of July 1137, just two months after the death of Eleanor's father, and two weeks later, in the Cathedral of Saint-Andre, surrounded by all of the great and good of France, Eleanor and Louis were married, and, as part of the ceremony, Eleanor was crowned as the Junior Queen of the French by her new husband. The couple wasted no time, leaving the cathedral and immediately setting off for Paris. On the way, they stopped off at Poitiers, where Louis was formally invested as Duke of Aquitaine, but literally minutes after the ceremony was completed, a messenger rushed in from Paris. Louis VI was dead. Eleanor, now the proper senior queen of the French. About three months earlier, she had been the daughter of a French duke. Now, she was the queen. Things could move very fast in the medieval world. She was formally crowned as Senior Queen of the French at a great court gathering in Bourges at Christmas 1137. The difference between Eleanor and Louis was absolutely vast, and this can be traced back to the places where they grew up. As we have said, Eleanor grew up in the Aquitanian Court, a place of free love, music, poetry, and cultural frivolity. Its main cities of Poitiers and Bordeaux were amongst the most developed and exciting places to be in Western Christendom. Louis, on the other hand, grew up in Paris. 12th century Paris had a long way to go before becoming the city of lights that we know today. It was a comparatively small, dour, dirty, pious, dull place. The Capetian French kings were seen as the paragons of Christian kingship, and had little interest in fun. They saw southerners like Eleanor as being soft, corrupt, lazy, and morally loose. They didn't even speak the same language. Aquitanians generally spoke a dialect called Occitan, rather than the more classical Middle French spoken in Paris. Louis himself was a very pious man. He was the second son, and was therefore earmarked for a career in the church. He had spent his childhood at the School of Notre Dame, but had been elevated to being junior king by the death of his brother, who had been thrown from and crushed by his horse after it had, quote, stumbled over a diabolical pig. After becoming the junior king at the tender age of ten, Louis continued his education at Notre Dame, and his childhood growing up around monks and priests affected every aspect of his life. The marriage between him and Eleanor was a complete culture clash. A famous quote attributed to Eleanor was that she had, quote, "'Married a monk, not a king.'" This did not mean that Louis was not attracted to his new bride. Quite the contrary, he was infatuated with a love that was almost childish, but he was also prudish in a way that an Aquitanian could never understand. There was more raunch and lewdness in just a single line of troubadour poetry than Louis would have been exposed to in his entire life. This was not the recipe for marital success. The culture clash was not just evident between the married couple. Eleanor brought to Paris with her a far larger entourage than was customary. Normally, a French queen would bring only a few attendants, but Eleanor brought at least 40 people, all dressing like Aquitanians, speaking like Aquitanians, and acting like Aquitanians. She and her ladies would adorn themselves lavishly and engage with the men of the court without any of the reserve and deference that was customary. She was the Marie Antoinette of her day and was causing almost as much unrest. Louis and the people of Paris saw entertainers and poets as nothing more than quote, "buffoons with prostitutes" and had no time for such frivolity. A big problem here was that we have two teenagers as king and queen with no dispassionate people to guide them. The king tended to rely on churchmen for advice who viewed queens as little more than ornaments and vessels for childbearing. Eleanor's mother died when she was very young and had grown up with a stepmother this meant that she had no direct model for female rulership, so she molded herself on some of the powerful and strong women of the 11th and early 12th centuries in neighbouring places, people like Adela of Bois and the Matildas of England. This model of queenship was dying out in France, and Louis was having none of it. Like I said, These are teenagers here, and while Eleanor's personality allowed her to deal with this situation with relative equanimity, Louis had none of his wife's relative maturity. He was a fairly mild and meek young man who was not a natural soldier or leader. This led him to wildly overcompensate and tended to pick fights irrationally. For example, when one Aquitanian courtier refused to swear loyalty to him as the new Duke of Aquitaine, Louis rode off with a few of his mates and summarily cut his hands off, which was considered a fairly brutal act even by the standards of the time. He was also very much under the sway of Suger of Saint-Denis and his mother, Adelaide of Morienne, who was not a fan at all of her new daughter-in-law. Dowager queens were meant to retire from public life, much like Adelaide of Louvain had done, but Adelaide was having none of that. Under the reign of her husband, Adelaide had held a position of considerable power, and was unwilling to give any of it up now that her son was on the throne. She allied with an influential courtier called Ralph of Vermandois to attempt to win back the revenues of her dower lands to give her a stronger financial power base. Louis, as I've said, was quite a dour man, not one for extravagance, so Adelaide and Ralph picked a fight with Eleanor for the amount of money that the Aquitanian entourage were spending to keep up their more exuberant lifestyle choices. However, Eleanor saw off this attempt, and it was she, far more than his mother, that held influence over the impressionable king over the next few years. Adelaide retired from court, marrying a relatively minor noble, Matthew of Montmorency. This set the stage for what was essentially a three-way running fight for influence over the king. In one corner was the Dowager Queen and her allies, in another was Saint-Denis and several churchmen, and in the final one was Eleanor. Adelaide and Eleanor were both aggressive and bellicose by nature, and Suger of Saint-Denis was always the pacifying influence at court. He, however, fell from favour after he failed to quell a revolt in Poitiers, and his absence was notable in what later became known as the Toulouse Affair, where Louis launched a rash and ill-prepared attempt to add the county of Toulouse to the purview of the Duchy of Aquitaine. He failed to consult his vassals, and many of these did not send troops to join the royal army, and one of these nobles was Theobald of Champagne. Now, this is where the story gets interesting, but bear with me on this because it's about to also get complicated. Remember Ralph of Vermandois? Well, it's about now that he announces that he is in love with Eleanor's sister, Petronella. There were a number of issues with this, but the greatest of them was that Ralph was already married to the sister of Theobald of Champagne. So, that was happening. Alongside this, there was a parallel crisis over the vacancy at the Archbishopric of Bourges. The cathedral chapter decided to overrule the king's choice, a man called Carduc, and chose their own candidate, a man called Pierre de la Châtre, and Pierre was ratified by the Pope. Louis here totally overreacted, petulantly blockading the city, refusing to let Pierre enter, so the archbishop-elect fled to the court of Theobald, where he was joined by a sister, who had been driven out of her home by her husband and his new squeeze. So now a matter of spurned love and dynastic rashness, had blown into civil war and a row with the papacy. Good work, Louis. And it was about to get a whole lot worse. Louis sent an army into Champagne to deal with Theobald, but he acted with massively disproportionate violence. They ravaged the towns and countryside, and in the town of Vitry, burnt a church to the ground where the townspeople had gathered in what they presumably thought was safety. Not one of them survived. So, why is this relevant to our story? Well, it is this marriage dispute that first brought to attention the legality of Eleanor and Louis's marriage. Eleanor had persuaded Louis to support Ralph and her sister Petronilla, and argued that Ralph's marriage to his current wife should be annulled on the grounds of consanguinity. If you remember from episode 3, the church did not permit marriages between couples who were related within seven degrees, and indeed Ralph and his wife were within those degrees, but so, in fact, were Louis and Eleanor. The third cousins, related through Robert II of France, but at the time of their marriage, no one cared. This affair, however, shone a bright light onto this technicality, and tongues began to wag. The Pope excommunicated Ralph and Petronilla, and Eleanor's wholehearted support of her sister alienated her from many of the king's advisers, where the spiritual faction around Suger was ascendant. Appalled by the massacre at Vitry and seeking an end to the crisis, Louis sought advice from two of the most eminent churchmen in France, Bernard of Clairvaux and Suger of Saint-Denis, who attempted to mediate, but Eleanor refused any settlement that did not end with a confirmation of Ralph and Petronilla's marriage. Bernard exasperated at Eleanor's faction at court, calling their intransigence, quote, "...the fraud of wicked men and the idle chatter of silly people who do not know good from evil or evil from good." Bernardo was a very persuasive man, and goes down in history as one of the rare people who managed to change Eleanor's mind on something. He promised her that if she relented, God would grant her and Louis a child, something that had eluded them in their first five years of marriage. Though you wouldn't know it from his conflict with the papacy and burning churches to the ground, Louis was still the same pious and repressed young man that he had always been, and so it seems that he had been avoiding having the necessary relations with his wife that might produce children. Soon after the settlement of Saint-Denis, though, Bernard kept his side of the bargain, and their first child was born, a girl called Marie. Eventually, Petronilla and Ralph managed to bribe the Pope into accepting their marriage, but Louis was forced to concede on the matter of the Archbishopric of Bourges. Louis's rapprochement with Suger of Saint-Denis, and growing friendship with Bernard of Clairvaux, meant that he had become even more withdrawn from his wife. Eleanor wanted passion and excitement. Louis gave her pious indifference. She was blamed by him for everything that had gone wrong, from the conflict with Rome to the massacre at Vitry. This growing distance between them is shown at the dedication of the new church at Saint-Denis. Louis gave Suger as a founding gift a rock crystal vase that Eleanor had given him as a wedding present. Ouch! Bernard and Suger held a very dim view of the flamboyant Aquitanians, and the queen was shunned from any real power. Unlike her predecessors, she was not present at charter signings and played little to no formal role in affairs of state. The only influence she could.
0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.
1: Wheeled was pillow talk, the kind of advice that only a wife can give to her husband, but Louis was rarely anywhere near her pillow and by now cared little what she might say across it. Domestic matters, however, were about to depart at stage left, as a crisis in the Holy Land allowed Eleanor to break free of the shackles of the boring French court. Now, the story of the Crusade is fascinating, enthralling, and not for this podcast. If this is more your cup of tea, I'd recommend the History of the Crusades podcast, a link to which I put in the show notes. But we do need some background to all that will shortly unfold, so I will give the briefest of brief histories. Jerusalem and its surroundings have been lost to Christendom in the 7th century CE, when it was captured by Umar ibn al-Khattab, a companion of Muhammad. The conquest of the Holy Land was not the apocalyptic disaster that some Christian writers portrayed it as. Indeed, the nature of Arab rule over the Holy Land is remarkable for its toleration of other faiths. Jews were allowed back into the city after having been banished from there by the Romans and the Christians, and Christians were still allowed to come and pray at the holy sites. Things were hardly difficult for Christian pilgrims, so why did armed conflict erupt? The reason is, shockingly, incredibly complicated, so I shall just sidestep it. And say that in 1195, Pope Urban II ordered that an armed pilgrimage be sent to Jerusalem to free it from the Arab infidels. The army of the First Crusade was made up of troops from across Europe, but its leaders mainly came from the duchies and counties of France. Against all the odds, in one of the most remarkable military feats of the Middle Ages, the crusading army captured Jerusalem in 1099 and set up a series of kingdoms and counties in the Holy Land known as the Crusader States, or Outremer, a map of which I have put in the show notes. These crusader states, however, never acted as a coherent body and frequently fought wars with each other, even allying with Muslim infidels in the process. In 1145, the northernmost crusader state, the county of Edessa, which these days sits in southeastern Turkey and a bit of northern Syria, fell to Zengi, the Turkish governor of Aleppo and Mosul. The loss of Edessa sent shockwaves back to Europe and immediately Pope Eugene III proclaimed a second crusade to free the crusader states of the Muslim conquerors. The First Crusade had largely been led by dukes and counts, and had been marked by considerable disorganisation in its formation. In order to counter this, the Pope wanted kings to lead the Christian effort, most specifically the new king of the French. He appointed Bernard of Clairvaux to go around Europe and drum up support for the Enterprise, but in Louis he was preaching to the converted. Still racked with guilt a Vitry and desperate to get back into God's good books, he announced his intention to go on crusade immediately. He convened a huge court gathering at Vézelay on Easter Sunday 1146, and attached the Crusader cross to his mantle. There, Bernard of Clairvaux preached the Crusade to an enormous audience, ranging from the richest noble to any peasant who could afford to come. The crowd stood in reverential silence, covering the entire side of a hill, because the huge church at Vézelay wasn't big enough to contain them all. Once Bernard had finished speaking, Louis stood up and spoke of his, quote, "'Great devotion to this war,' before taking the cross. Then Eleanor stood up. She was not wearing her usual finery, instead wearing plain crusader robes. She too knelt before Bernard and pledged the vassals and resources of Aquitaine to the Endeavour and announced her intention to follow her husband to the Holy Land. It was not normal for noblewomen to go on crusade, so it's not certain why she went. There are a couple of arguments. One is that Louis was so infatuated with Eleanor that he needed to keep her with him this is articulated by english chronicler william of newburgh Quote, she had so enmeshed and captivated the heart of the young man with the charm of her beauty and that when he was about to embark on that most celebrated expedition his over-urgent longing for his young wife led him to decide that she should certainly not be left at home but should set out with him to the wars This argument that Louis was so infatuated with Eleanor that it explains everything that happened during her time as queen is not one that I find terribly convincing, as it seems to me that Louis was rather scared of his wife and not entirely sure what to do with her, rather like an overly complicated kitchen appliance with too many settings. Chroniclers like to talk about Louis's infatuation with his wife a lot, but I think it's really just a means to blame everything on the woman who used her good looks and charms to cause the religious and righteous king to stray away from the right path the medieval equivalent of the Livia Didit theory of the history of the Julio-Claudian dynasty. I find it more likely that Eleanor was just keen on the adventure, and Louis was happy to bring her along, as she would probably cause him far fewer headaches here than if she was left to run amok in France while he was away. Or so he thought. Bernard Clairvaux's propaganda for the Crusade was very successful. He later wrote that, quote, "...towns and castles are emptied. One might scarcely find one man among seven women." And while this is of course a wild exaggeration, he did manage to drum up armies from almost every power of Europe. Along with Louis, the king of the Germans, Conrad III, added royal authority, and the counts of Flanders and Toulouse brought along their wives too, so that Eleanor had some female companions. We don't have reliable numbers for the size of the army that set out from Europe, but it was somewhere in the region of forty to 50,000 men. The arranged meeting point was in Constantinople, the greatest city in Christendom. The armies left the Holy Land in three main groups. An army of English, Scottish, and Flemish Crusaders elected to go by sea, but they were forced to stop off in Portugal due to bad weather and were persuaded to help liberate the area of the Moorish presence. They were very successful, capturing Lisbon later that year, but very few made it to the Holy Land. That capture of Lisbon, though, would be the only real success of the Second Crusade. The German contingent, led by Conrad III, took the land route and arrived in Constantinople early, but the Byzantine Emperor panicked at such a large army, worrying that it might be an attempt to overthrow him. After a few skirmishes, Emperor Manuel persuaded Comrade to go across the Bosphorus into enemy territory without waiting for Louis. This, predictably, ended in disaster, as his army was ambushed at the Battle of Dorylaeum, and a great part was either killed or sold into slavery. So yeah, this was going well. The French army, led by Louis and Eleanor, also took the land route to Constantinople and arrived there in October, about a month behind Conrad. The Byzantine emperors were always an ungrateful bunch and refused to join Louis on the expedition and, after entertaining him and Eleanor lavishly for a short time, sent them alone across into Anatolia, where his army rendezvoused with the surviving Germans before heading south. Eleanor gets a lot of unfair blame for her actions on this crusade, and is often used as a scapegoat for the failures that were hardly of her making. Chroniclers criticised her extravagant baggage train on the route as being unfitting for such a pious undertaking, and blamed her for slowing the army down. And, while a lot of this is unfounded, the size of the army trundling through Anatolia meant that it had to travel very slowly, and was thus always at risk of ambush, and the Turks seized their chance at Mount Cadmus. The army's vanguard, which contained amongst others Eleanor herself, pushed too far ahead of the column as they descended the mountain, and the rear guard, which contained the king, was also too far back. The baggage train in the middle, therefore, was left completely exposed, and the army was hit by a surprise attack and suffered heavy losses. The king and queen used the cover of darkness to lead their army out of the fray, reached Atalaya two weeks later, where their battered army set sail for Antioch. The Crusaders had gotten out of Anatolia, but both the German and French armies had been badly mauled by the experience. Once they reached the city of Antioch, though, they were hit by yet more bad news. The city of Edessa, the liberation of which had been the whole point of this crusade, had been completely destroyed after an Armenian-led revolt. So they were thousands of miles away from home, and their primary objective was lost. What to do next? The ruler of Antioch was Eleanor's uncle, Raymond, who was described by William of Tyre as being, quote, the handsomest of the princes of the earth. He was about ten years older than Eleanor, and had been the prince of Antioch for a decade. He extended the kind of welcome that an Anacitanian would appreciate, full of lavish gifts, entertainments, but all for a purpose. He wanted the crusader army to serve his ends and attack the city of Aleppo to the east, and enlisted as his ally, his niece. Louis, on the other hand, wanted to head south to meet up with Conrad III, who had sailed ahead onto Jerusalem. At this point, most queens would know their duty and follow her husband, but Eleanor was the kind of woman who shoved her finger up at the patriarchy. All through her marriage, she had been an outcast, her language and culture considered alien and unwanted in the French court. During the journey east, her husband had ignored her, travelling separately in different parts of the column. Now in Antioch, she found a kindred spirit in her uncle, and the ability to converse in her own dialect to someone who understood her was intoxicating. They spent a considerable amount of time in each other's company, enough to make the gossip mills turn in earnest. John of Salisbury writes, The most Christian king of the French reached Antioch after the destruction of his armies in the east and was nobly entertained there by Prince Raymond, brother of the late William Count of Poitiers. He was as it happens the queen's uncle and owed to the king loyalty affection and respect for many reasons but whilst they remained there to console heal and revive the survivors from the wreck of the army the attention that was paid by the prince to the queen and his constant indeed almost continuous conversation with her aroused the king's suspicions these were greatly strengthened when the queen wished to remain behind although the king was preparing to leave and the prince made every effort to keep her if the king would give his consent This hint at an incestuous affair is described in more lurid detail by William of Tyre. Raymond, "...resolved also to deprive Louis of his wife, either by force or secret intrigue. The Queen readily assented to this design, for she was a foolish woman. Her conduct before and after this time showed her to be, as we have said, far from circumspect. Contrary to the King's dignity, she disregarded her marriage vows and was unfaithful to her husband." These accusations also appear in the accounts of Richard of De Vizes and Gervase of Canterbury. Richard of De Vizes has my favourite description of it. Quote, many know what I would that none of us knew. Let no one say any more about it. I know it well. Keep silent. Now, whether or not Eleanor actually banged her uncle is not that important, however entertaining or deliciously scandalous the thought. The fact is that she was careless enough to let people think she was banging her uncle, and this really is eleanor's greatest weakness. She was about as subtle in her behavior as a kick to the nuts. Some sources go even further and seem to describe eleanor sleeping her way across the holy land, even bedding the young Saladin, who had later become the nemesis of her son Richard in the third crusade. Whatever happened in Antioch, Louis was determined to head south to the holy city of Jerusalem, and ordered eleanor to accompany him. She shocked everyone by refusing, even threatening him with divorce, once again bringing up that spectre of consanguinity, the fact that they were technically too closely related to be married. She was, though, in no position to make demands, and, against her will, she was taken to the city of Jerusalem for the final phase of the crusade. John of Salisbury describes the atmosphere between them as, quote, "...their mutual anger, growing greater, the wound remained. Hide it as best they might." What remained of the Christian armies laid siege to the Muslim-held city of Damascus, but the whole thing was an absolute farce, and ended in disaster, just like every other encounter in this sorry mess. The leaders of the armies all blamed each other for the failure, and thus ended the Second Crusade. Most of the major figures left immediately, but Louis remained for a few months, travelling around the Christian-held areas of the Holy Land, visiting sites, praying at shrines, and generally doing a lot of penance. He was growing ever and ever more the pious, withdrawn king, and this cannot have done anything to improve the relations with his wife. Finally, after many pleading letters from Suge, Louis and Eleanor set off back to France after Easter of 1149. As a growing sign of their estrangement, they travelled in separate ships on their voyage from Acre back to the west. It was far from a simple trip. The fleet was caught in a naval battle near Constantinople, and at one point Eleanor's ship was even captured by the Byzantines, but she was quickly freed by the emperor. Just before they reached Sicily, the fleet was scattered by storms, and the king and queen reached the island at different places, and it was many weeks before they were reunited on the Italian mainland. Eleanor's health had suffered greatly on the long voyage, and so they moved slowly, and eventually reached Tusculum, just south of Rome, where they had an audience with Pope Eugene. The Pope had been informed by Suger that the couple were in trouble, and offered his services as a marriage counsellor and mediator. He interviewed both in turn, and apparently chided each of them for being dumb, but in the end, somewhat unsurprisingly, he came down on the side of the king. According to John of Salisbury, Eugene, "...forbade any further mention of their consanguinity, confirming their marriage both orally and in writing. He commanded under pain of anathema that no word should be spoken against it, and that it should not be dissolved under any pretext." He then went further, ordering them to share the marital bed, even preparing personally a richly decorated room where they could lie together as man and wife. He continued his newfound hobby of marriage counseling by using friendly converse to restore love between them. After a couple of weeks, Louis and Eleanor set off back to Paris, and it seemed for a short time that the papal intervention had worked at least in a physical sense, as the queen was now pregnant for the second time, giving birth in 1150 to a second daughter called Alice. As I've said before, the production of male heirs was seen to be a crucial aspect of queenship. It was essential for safeguarding the security of the kingdom, but also a sign that the royal marriage was blessed by God. If Eleanor had given birth to a son in 1150, then things might have turned out very differently. Neither Louis nor Eleanor were happy, as their personalities and views on each other's roles in the running of the kingdom were so wildly different. Yet a son could have united the pair. As it was, their marriage was coming to an end but this would not be the end of Eleanor's time as Queen, for there was a young and vigorous man making a name for himself to the north, and he was far more what Eleanor had in mind for a husband than Louis. Next time, we will look at the annulment of Eleanor's marriage to Louis and her subsequent remarriage to Henry Empress, the soon-to-be King Henry II of England. Her first marriage may have been tempestuous, but it had nothing on her second.